Welcome to Volume 2 of this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Chapter 2. Our Lady of the Museums. Part 1. How did it ever happen that when the dregs of the world had collected in Western Europe, when Goth and Frank and Norman and Lombard had mingled with the rot of old Rome to form a patchwork of hybrid races, all of them notable for ferocity, hatred, stupidity, craftiness, lust, and brutality. How did it happen that from all this there should come the Gregorian chant, monasteries, and cathedrals, the poems of Prudentius, the commentaries and histories of Bede, the Moralia of Gregory the Great, St. Augustine's City of God and his Trinity, the writings of St. Anselm, St. Bernard's sermons on the Canticles, the poetry of Cadman and Cynewulf and Langland and Dante, St. Thomas's Summa, and the Oxyniensis of Duns Scotus. How does it happen that even today a couple of ordinary French stonemasons or a carpenter and his apprentice can put up a dovecote or a barn that has more architectural perfection than the piles of eclectic stupidity that grow up at the costs of hundreds of thousands of dollars on the campuses of American universities. When I went to France in 1925, returning to the land of my birth, I was also returning to the fountains of the intellectual and spiritual life of the world to which I belonged. I was returning to the spring of natural waters, if you will, but waters purified and cleansed by grace with such powerful effect that even the corruption and decadence of the French society of our day has never been able to poison them entirely or reduce them once again to their original and barbarian corruption. And yet it was France that grew the finest flowers of delicacy and grace and intelligence and wit, understanding and proportion and taste. Even the countryside, even the landscape of France, whether in the low hills and lush meadows and apple orchards of Normandy, or in the sharp and arid and vivid outline of the mountains of Provence, or in the vast rolling red vineyards of Languedoc, seems to have been made full of special perfection, as a setting for the best of the cathedrals, the most interesting towns, the most fervent monasteries, and the greatest universities. But the wonderful thing about France is how all her perfections harmonize so fully together. She has possessed all the skills from cooking to logic and theology, from bridge building to contemplation, from vine growing to sculpture, from cattle breeding to prayer, and possess them more perfectly, separately, and together than any other nation. Why is it that songs of the little French children are more graceful, their speech more intelligent and sober, their eyes calmer and more profound than those of the children of other nations? Who can explain these things? France, I am glad I was born in your land, and I am glad God brought me back to you for a time before it was too late. I did not know all these things about France, the rainy September evening when we landed at Calais, coming from England through which we had passed on our way, nor did I share or understand the enthusiastic satisfaction with which Father got off the boat and walked into the noise of the French station, filled with the cries of porters and with the steam of the French trains. I was tired and fell asleep long before we got to Paris. I woke up long enough to be impressed by the welter of lights in the wet streets and the dark sweep of the Seine as we crossed one of the 
countless bridges, while far away the fires of the Eiffel Tower spelled out C-I-T-R-O-E-N. The words Montparnasse, Rue de Saint-Père, Gardeloriens filled my mind with their unmeaning and spelled me no certitude concerning the tall gray houses and the wide shading awnings of the cafes and the trees and the people and the churches and the flying taxis and the green and white buses full of noise. I did not have time at the age of ten to make anything out of the city, but already I knew I was going to like France. And then, once more, we were on a train. That day, on that express, going into the south, into the Midi, I discovered France. I discovered that land, which is really, as far as I can tell, the one to which I do belong, if I belong to any at all, by no documentary title, but by geographical birth. We flew over the brown lore by a long, long bridge at Orleans, and then on I was home, although I had never seen it before, and shall never see it again. It was there, too, that Father told me about Joan of Arc, and I suppose the thought of her was with me, at least in the back of my mind, all that day long. Maybe the thought of her acting as a kind of implicit prayer by the veneration and love it kindled in me won me her intercession in heaven, so that through her I was able to get some sort of actual grace out of the sacrament of her land, and to contemplate God without realizing it in all the poplars along those streams, in all the low-roofed houses gathered about the village churches, in the woods and the farms and the bridged rivers. We passed a place called Chateau d'Um, where the land became rockier. We came to Limoges with a labyrinth of tunnels, ending in a burst of light and a high bridge and a panorama of the city crowding up the side of a steep hill to the feet of the plain-towered cathedral. And all the time we were getting deeper and deeper into the Aquitaine, towards the old provinces of Quercy and Roigue, where, although we were not sure yet of our destination, I was to live and drink from the fountain of the Middle Ages. In the evening we came to a station called Brive. The dusk was gathering. The country was hilly and full of trees, yet rocky, and you knew the uplands were bare and wild. In the valleys were castles. It was too dark for us to see Cahors. And then Montauban. What a dead town. What darkness and silence after the train. We came out of the station into an empty, dusty square, full of shadows and dim light here and there. The hooves of the cab horse clopped away along the empty street, taking some of the other people who had descended from the express off into the mysterious town. We picked up our bags and crossed the square to a hotel that was there, one of those low, undefined, gray little hotels with a dim bulb burning in a downstairs window, illuminating a small cafe and a lot of iron tables and a few calendars covered with fly specks and the big volumes of Botan crowding the rickety desk of the sour-faced lady in black who presided over the four customers. And yet, instead of being dreary, it was pleasant, and although I had no conscious memory of anything like this, it was familiar, and I felt at home. Father threw open the wooden shutters of the room and looked out into the quiet night without stars and said, Do you smell the wood smoke in the air? That's the smell of the midi. Part 2 when we awoke in the morning and looked out into the bright sunlit air and saw the low-tiled roofs, we realized that we had come upon a scene 
different from the last kind of landscape we had seen by the light of the previous evening in the train. We were at the borders of Languedoc. Everything was red. The town was built of brick. It stood on a kind of low bluff over the clay-colored eddies of the river Tarn. We might almost have been in the part of Spain, but oh, it was dead, that town. Why were we there? Well, it was not only that Father wanted to continue painting in the south of France. He had come back to us that year with more than a beard. Whether it was his sickness or what, I do not know, but something had made him certain that he could not leave the training and care of his sons to other people, and that he had a responsibility to make some kind of home, somewhere where he could at the same time carry on his work and have us living with him, growing up under his supervision. And what is more, he had become definitely aware of certain religious obligations for us as well as for himself. I am sure that he had never ceased to be a religious man, but now, a thing which I did not remember from my earlier years, he told me to pray, to ask God to help us, to help him paint, to help him have a successful exhibition, and to find us a place to live. When we were settled then, perhaps after a year or two, he would bring John Paul over to France too. Then he would have a home. So far, of course, everything was indefinite. But the reason why we had come to Montauban was that he had been advised that there was a very good school there. The school in question was the Institut Jean Calvin, and the recommendations had come from some prominent French Protestants whom Father knew. I remember we went and visited the place. It was a big, clean, white building overlooking the river. There were some sunny cloisters full of greenery, and all the rooms were empty because it was still the time of summer vacation. However, there was something about it that Father did not like, and I was, thank God, never sent there. As a matter of fact, it was not so much a school as a kind of Protestant residence where a lot of youths, who belonged mostly to fairly well-to-do families, boarded and received religious instruction and supervision, and for the rest attended the classes of the local lycee. And so I obscurely began to realize that, although Father was anxious for me to get some kind of religious training, he was by no means in love with French Protestantism. As a matter of fact, I'd learned later from some of his friends that at that time there had been not a little likelihood that he might become a Catholic. He seems to have been much attracted to the church, but in the end he resisted the attraction because of the rest of us. I think he felt that his first duty was to take the ordinary means at his disposal to get me and John Paul to practice whatever religion was nearest to us at hand. For if he became a Catholic, there might have been immense complications with the rest of the family, and we would perhaps have remained without any religion at all. He would have felt far less hesitant if he had only some Catholic friends of his own intellectual level, someone who would be able to talk to him intelligently about his faith. But as far as I know, he had none. He had a tremendous respect for the good Catholic people we met, but they were too inarticulate about the church to be able to tell him anything about it that he could understand. And also, they were generally far too shy. Then too, after the first day, it became clear that Matoban was no place for us. There was really nothing there worth painting. It was a good enough town, but it was dull. The only thing that interested Father was the Musée Ingres, filled with meticulous drawings by that painter who had been born in Matoban. And that collection of cold and careful sketches was not enough to keep anyone at a high pitch of inspiration for much more than 15 minutes. More characteristically of the town was a nightmarish bronze monument by Mordel outside the museum, 
which seemed to represent a group of cliff dwellers battling in a mass of molten chocolate. However, when we happened to inquire at the syndicate d'initiative about places to live, we saw photographs of some little town which, as we were told, was in a valley called Avaron, not very far away to the northeast of the city. The afternoon we took the peculiar antiquated train out of Montauban into the country. We felt something like the three magi after leaving Herod and Jerusalem when they caught sight once again of their star. The locomotive had big wheels and a low squat boiler and an inordinately high smokestack so that it seemed to have escaped from the museum except that it was very sturdy and did its work well. And the three or four little coaches sped us quickly into a territory that was certainly sacramental. The last town that had a brick campanile to its church was Montreco. Then the train entered the Aveyron Valley. After that, we were more or less in Rouergue, and then we began to see something. I did not realize what we were getting into until the train swept around a big curve of the shallow river and came to a stop under the sunny plane trees along the platform of a tiny station. And we looked out the window and saw that we had just passed along the bottom of a sheer cliff one or two hundred feet high, with a thirteenth-century castle on top of it. All around us, the steep hills were thick with woods, small gnarled oaks clinging to the rock. Along the river, the slender poplars rippled with the light of late afternoon, and green waters danced on the stones. The people who got on and off the train were peasants with black smocks, and on the roads we saw men walking beside teams of oxen, drawing their two-wheeled carts, and they guided the placid beasts with their long sticks. Father told me that the people were all talking, not French, but the old patois, Languedoc. The next place was Penne, at the meeting of two valleys. A thin escarpment of rock soared up boldly over the river, bent and sharply rising like an open wing. On the top were the ruins of another castle. Farther down, straggling along the ridge, went the homes of the village, and somewhere among them, the small square tower of a church, an open iron belfry on top with a visible bell. The valley seemed to get narrower and deeper as the train followed its narrow single track between the river and the rocks. Sometimes there was enough space between us and the river to contain a small hayfield. Occasionally a deserted dirt road or a cattle track would cross our way, and there would be a house and a crossing gate and furious French bells throwing the sudden scare of their clangor through the windows of the carriage as we passed by. The valley widened a little to contain the village of Casals, hanging onto the foot of the hill across the river. And then we were back in the gorge. If you went to the window and looked up, you could see the gray and yellow cliffs towering up so high they almost blocked out the sky. And now we begin to distinguish caves high up on the rock. Later, I would climb up there and visit some of them. Passing through tunnel after tunnel and over many bridges, through bursts of light and greenery, followed by deep shadow, we came at last to the town of our destination. It was an old, old town. Its history went back to the Roman days, which were the times of the martyred saint, its patron. Antonius had brought Christianity to the Roman colony in this valley, and later he had been martyred in another place, Parmier, down in the foothills of the Pyrenees, near Prades, where I was born. Even in 1925, St. Antoine preserved the shape of a round-walled burg. Only the walls themselves were gone, 
and were replaced on three sides by a wide circular street lined with trees and spacious enough to be called a boulevard, although you hardly ever saw anything on it but ox carts and chickens. The town itself was a labyrinth of narrow streets lined by old 13th century houses, mostly falling into ruins. Nevertheless, the medieval town was there, and the houses and shops were no longer occupied by prosperous merchants and artisans. There was nothing left of the color and gaiety and noise of the Middle Ages. Nevertheless, to walk through those streets was to be in the Middle Ages, for nothing had been touched by man, only by ruin and by the passage of time. It seems that one of the busiest guilds of the town had been that of the tanners, and the old tanneries were still there, along a narrow, foul-smelling sewer of a stream that ran through a certain section of the town. But in those old days, the whole place had been filled with the activity of all the work belonging to a free and prosperous commune. And, as I say, the center of it all was the church. Unfortunately, the very importance of the ancient shrine of St. Antoine had drawn down violence upon it in the days of the religious wars. The church that now stood on the ruins was entirely modern, and we could not judge what the old one had bid like or see, reflected in its work and construction, the attitude of the citizens who had built it. Even now, however, the church dominated the town, and each noon and evening sent forth the Angelus bells over the brown ancient tiled roofs, reminding the people of the Mother of God who watched over them. And even now, although I never thought of it, and was indeed incapable of doing so, since I had no understanding of the concept of Mass, even now, several times each morning, under those high arches, on the altar over the relics of the martyr, took place that tremendous, secret, and obvious immolation, so secret that it will never be thoroughly understood by a created intellect, and yet so obvious that its very obviousness blinds us by excess of clarity, the unbloody sacrifice of God under the species of bread and wine. Here, in this amazing ancient town, the very pattern of the place, of the houses and streets and of nature itself, the circling hills, the cliffs and trees, all focused my attention upon the one important central fact of the church and what it contained. Here, everywhere I went, I was forced by the disposition of everything around me to be always, at least virtually, conscious of the church. Every street pointed more or less inward to the center of the town, to the church. Every view of the town from the exterior hills centered upon the long gray building that was its high spire. The church had been fitted to the landscape in such a way as to become the keystone of its intelligibility. Its presence imparted a special form, a particular significance to everything else that the eye beheld, to the hills, the forests, the fields, the white cliffs, and to the red bastion of the Roque Rouge, and to the winding river and the green valley of Bonnet, the valley, the town, and the bridge, and even the white stucco villas of the modern bourgeois that dotted the fields and orchards outside the precinct of the vanished ramparts. And the significance that was thus imparted was a supernatural one. The whole landscape, unified by the church and its heavenward spire, seemed to say, this is the meaning of all created things. We have been made for no other purpose than that men may use us in raising themselves to God and in proclaiming the glory of God. We have been fashioned in all our perfection 
each according to his own nature, and all our natures ordered and harmonized together, that man's reason and his love might fit in this last one element, this God-given key to the meaning of the whole. Oh, what a thing it is to live in a place that is so constructed that you are forced, in spite of yourself, to be at least a virtual contemplative, where all day long your eyes must turn again and again to the house that hides the sacramental Christ. I did not even know who Christ was, that he was God. I had not the faintest idea that there existed such a thing as the Blessed Sacrament. I thought churches were simply places where people got together and sang a few hymns. And yet now I tell you, you who are now what I once were, unbelievers, it was that sacrament and that alone, the Christ living in our midst and sacrificed by us, for us, and with us in the clean and perpetual sacrifice. It is he alone who holds our world together and keeps us from being poured headlong and immediately into the pit of our eternal destruction. And I tell you, there is a power that goes forth from that sacrament, a power of light and truth, even into the hearts of those who have heard nothing of him and seem to be incapable of belief. Part 3 We soon rented an apartment in a three-story house at the edge of the town on the Place de la Condamine, where they held a cattle market. But Father planned to build a house on his own, and soon he bought some land nearby the lower slope of the big hill that closed off the western arm of the valley of Bonnet. On top of the hill was a little chapel, now abandoned, called Le Calvaire. And indeed, up the rocky path through the vineyards and behind our land, there had once been a series of shrines, making the fourteen stations of the cross between the town and the top of the hill. But that kind of piety had died away in the 19th century, and there were not enough good Catholics left to keep that alive. And then when Father began to make plans for building his house, we traveled all around the countryside, looking at places and also visiting villages where there might be good subjects for pictures. Thus I was constantly in and out of old churches and stumbled upon the ruins of ancient chapels and monasteries. We saw wonderful hill towns like Najac and Corday. Corday was even more perfectly preserved than St. Antoine, but it did not have the form of our town built around its shrine, although Corday was, of course, centered upon its church too. But Corday had been built as a sort of fortified summer resort for the Counts of Languedoc, and its chief attraction were the more or less fancy houses of the court officials who came out there for the hunting with their lord. Then, too, we went down into the plains to the south and came to Albi, where the red cathedral of St. Cecilia frowned over the tarn like a fortress. And from the top of that tower, we looked out over the plains of Languedoc, where all the churches were forts. This land was long, wild with heresy, and with the fake mysticism that tore men away from the church and from the sacraments and sent them into hiding to fight their way to some strange suicidal nirvana. There was a factory in St. Antoine, the only factory in the place, employing the only proletarians, three or four men who were also the only communists. The factory made some kind of a machine for raising hay effortlessly from the surface of a field onto the top of a wagon, the man who owned it was called Rodolos, the town capitalist. He had two sons who ran his plant for him. One of them was a tall, lanky, solemn, dark-haired man with horn-rimmed spectacles. One evening, 
We were sitting in one of the cafes of the town, a deserted place run by a very old man. Rodolos got to talking with father, and I remembered his polite inquiry as to whether we were Russians. He got that idea from his beard. When he found out we had come to live, he immediately offered to sell us his house and invited us out there to dinner that we might see it. The house of Simon de Montfort, as it was called, was a big farm a mile or two out of town on the road to Calas. It stood on the slope of a hill overlooking the valley of Bonnet and was itself in the mouth of a deep circular valley full of woods, whereas we found a small stream full of watercress rose from a clear spring. The house itself was an ancient place and looked as if de Montfort might have indeed lived in it, but it also looked as if he might be haunting it. It was very dark and gloomy, and being dark was no place for a painter. Besides, it was too expensive for us, and father preferred a house of his own. It was not long after that that I started to go to the local elementary school, where I sat with great embarrassment among the very smallest children and tried to pick up French as we went along. Father had already drawn up plans for the house we would build on the land he had now bought at the foot of Calvary. It would have one big room, which would be a studio and dining room and living room, and then upstairs there would be a couple of bedrooms. That was all. We traced out the foundations, and Father and a workman began to dig. There was a water diviner that came in and found us water, and we had a well dug. Near the well, Father planted two poplar trees, one for me and one for John Paul. And to the east of the house, he laid out a large garden when the following spring came around. Meanwhile, we made a lot of friends. I don't know whether it was through the capitalist Rodolos or through the radical socialist teamster Perrault that we got in contact with the local rugby football team, or they with us. One of the first things that happened after our arrival was that a delegation from the club, the avant-garde de Saint-Antoine, presented themselves to Father and asked him to become president of the club. He was English, and therefore he was an expert, they assumed, in every type of sport. As a matter of fact, he had played rugby for his school in New Zealand. So he became president of the club and occasionally refereed their wild games at the risk of his own life. It was not only the rules had changed since his time, but there was a special interpretation of the rules in St. Antoine, which no one could discover without a private revelation or the gift of the discernment of souls. However, he lived through the season. I used to accompany him and the team to all the games they played away from home, going as far away as Fillac to the northeast, deep in the hill country of Rogue or Galac on the plains of Languedoc, to the south, a town with one of those fortress churches and a real stadium for its rugby team. Saint Antoine was not, of course, called in to play the Galac first 15, but only to play an opener, while the crowds were coming in for the principal game. In those days, the whole south of France was infected with a furious and violent passion for rugby football and played it with a bloodthirsty energy that sometimes ended in mortal injuries. In the really important games, the referee usually had to be escorted from the grounds afterwards by special bodyguards and not infrequently had to make his escape over the fence and through the fields. The only sport that raised a more universal and more intense excitement than rugby was long-distance bicycle racing. St. Antoine was off the circuit of the big road races, but occasionally there would be a race that came through our hills, and we would stand at the end of the long climb at the top of Rocher de Glare and watch them coming slowly up the hill 
with their noses almost scraping the front wheels of their bikes as they bent far down and toiled, with all their muscles clenched into tremendous knots and the veins standing out on their foreheads. One of the members of the rugby team was a small, rabbit-like man, the son of the local hay and feed dealer, who owned a car and drove most of the team back and forth from the games. One night he nearly killed himself and about six of us when a rabbit got into the lights on the road ahead of us and kept running in front of the car. Immediately this wild Frenchman jammed his foot down on the gas and started after the rabbit. The white tail bobbed up and down on the light, always just a few feet ahead of the wheels, and whipping from one side of the road to the other to throw the auto off his scent. Only the auto didn't hunt that way. It just kept roaring after the rabbit, zigzagging from one side of the road to the other and nearly spilling us all into the ditch. Those of us who were piled up in the back seat began to get a little nervous, especially when we observed that we were coming to the top of a long, steep hill that went winding down into the valley where St. Antoine was. If we kept up after that rabbit, we would surely go over the bank, and then we wouldn't stop turning over and over until we landed in the river a couple of hundred feet below. Somebody growled a modest complaint. C'est à serin! Tu ne l'attraperais pas! The son of the hay and feed dealer said nothing. He bent over the wheel with his eyes popping at the road, and the white tail in front of us kept darting away from the wheels of the car, zigzagging from the high bank on one side to the ditch on the other. Then we came over the hill. The darkness and emptiness of the valley was before us. The road began to descend. The complaints in the back seat increased and became a chorus, but the driver stepped on the gas even harder. The car careened wildly across the road. We had nearly caught the rabbit, but not quite. He was out there, still ahead of us again. We'll get him on the hill, exclaimed the driver. Rabbits cannot run downhill. Their hind legs are too long. The rabbit ahead of us was doing a fine job of running downhill, just about five feet ahead of our front wheels. Then somebody began to yell, Look out! Look out! We were coming to a fork in the road. The main road went to the left, and an older road sloped off at a steeper incline to the right. In between them was a wall, and the rabbit headed straight for the wall. Stop! Stop! We implored. Nobody could tell which way the rabbit was going to go, and the wall was flying straight at us. All done! Someone shouted. The car gave a wild lurch, and if there had been any room in the back, we would have all fallen to the floor. But we were not dead. The car was still on the main road, roaring down into the valley, and to our immense relief, there was no rabbit out there in front of our lights. Did you catch him? I asked hopefully. Oh no, replied the driver sadly. He took the other road. Our friend, the teamster Perrault, was a huge, powerful man, but he did not play on the football team. He was too lazy and too dignified, although he would have been a decorative addition to the outfit. There were three or four others like him, big men with huge black mustaches and bristling eyebrows, as wild as the traditional representations of Gog and Magog. One of them used to play whole games wearing a gray, peaked street cap. I suppose if we had ever played on a really hot day, he would have come out on the field with a straw hat. Anyway, this element of a team would have been a fine subject for Rousseau, and Perrault would have fitted in admirably. His only sport was sitting at the table of a cafe and buying cognac. Sometimes, too, he made excursions to Toulouse, and once, while we were standing on the bridge, he gave me a blood-curdling description of a fight he had been in with an Arab, with a knife, in the big city. 
It was Perot who took us to a wedding feast at a farm up by Quelos. I went to several of these feasts during the time when I was at St. Antoine, and I never saw anything so gargantuan. And yet it was never wild or disordered. The peasants and the foresters and the others who were there certainly ate and drank tremendously, but they never lost their dignity as human beings. They sang and danced and played tricks on one another, and the language was often fairly coarse, but in a manner which was more or less according to custom. And on the whole, the atmosphere was good and healthy, and all this pleasure was sanctified by a sacramental occasion. On this occasion, Perrault put on his good black suit and his clean cap and hitched up a gig, and we drove to Quelos. It was the farm of his uncle or cousin. The place was crowded with carts and carriages, and the feast was more or less a communal affair. Everybody had provided something toward it, and Father brought a bottle of strong black Greek wine which nearly pulverized the host. There were too many guests to be contained in the big dining room and kitchen of the farm, and with its blood sausages and strings of onions hanging from the beams. One of the barns had been cleaned out, and tables had been set up in there. About one o'clock in the afternoon, everyone sat down and began to eat. After the soups, the women began to bring in the main courses from the kitchen. There were plates and plates of every kind of meat, rabbit, veal, mutton, lamb, beef, stews and steaks and fowl, fried, boiled, braised, roasted, sautéed, fricasseed, dished this and that way with wine sauces and all other kinds of sauces, with practically nothing else to go with it except an occasional piece of potato or carrot or onion in the garnishing. All year round, they live on bread and vegetables and bits of sausage, Father explained. So now, they don't want anything but meat. And I suppose he had the right explanation. But before the meal was half over, I got up from the table and staggered out into the air and leaned against the wall of the barn and watched the huge belligerent geese parading up and down the barnyard, dragging their tremendous overstuffed livers in the dirt, those livers which would soon be turned into the kind of pâté de foie gras which even now made me sick. The feast lasted until late in the afternoon, and even when night fell, some were still at it there in the barn. But meanwhile, the owner of the farm, and Perrault and father, and I had gone out to see an old abandoned chapel that stood out on the property. I wondered what it had been. A shrine? A hermitage, perhaps? But now, in any case, it was in ruins, and it had a beautiful 13th or 14th century window, empty, of course, of its glass. Father bought the whole thing with some of the money he had saved up from his last exhibition, and we eventually used the stones and the window and the door arches and so on in building our house in St. Antoine. By the time the summer of 1926 came around, we were well established in St. Antoine, although work on the house had not yet really begun. By this time I had learned French, or all the French that a boy of eleven was expected to use in the ordinary course of his existence. And I remember how I spent hours that winter reading books about all the other wonderful places there were in France. Pop had sent us money at Christmas, and we used some of it to buy a big, expensive three-volume set of books full of pictures called Les Pères de France, I shall never forget the fascination in which I studied it and filled my mind with those cathedrals and ancient abbeys and those castles and towns and monuments of culture that had so captivated my heart. I remember how I looked at the ruins of Jumige and Cluny, and I wondered how those immense basilicas had looked in the days of their glory. 
Then there was Chartres with its two unequal spires, the long, vast name of Bourgeux, the soaring choir of Bouvet, the strange, fat, Romanesque cathedral of Angoulême, and the white Byzantine Dôme de Périgueux. I gazed upon the huddled buildings of the ancient Grand Chartreuse, crowded together in their solitary valley with the high mountains loaded with firs soaring up their rocky summit on either side. What kind of men had lived in those cells? I cannot say I wondered much about that as I looked at the pictures. I had no curiosity about monastic vocations or religious rules, but I know my heart was filled with a kind of longing to breathe the air of that lonely valley and to listen to its silence. I wanted to be in all those places, which the pictures of Le Paz de France showed me. Indeed, it was a kind of problem to me, and an unconscious source of obscure and half-realized woe, that I could not be in all of them at once. Part 4 That summer, 1926, much to father's distress, because he wanted to stay at Saint-Antoine and work on the house and at his painting, Pop gathered up a great mountain of luggage in New York, stirred Bonhamman into action, dressed up my brother John Paul in a new suit, and, armed with passports and a whole sheaf of tickets from Thomas Cook and Son, boarded the liner Leviathan and started for Europe. News of this invasion had been disturbing Father for some time. Pop was not content to come and spend a month or two in St. Antoine with us. In fact, he was not particularly anxious to come to this small forgotten town at all. He wanted to keep on the move, and since he had two months at his disposal, he saw no reason why he could not cover the whole of Europe, from Russia to Spain and Scotland to Constantinople. However, being dissuaded from this Napoleonic ambition, he consented to restrict his appetite for sightseeing to England, Switzerland, and France. In May or June, the information reached us that Pop had descended in force upon London, had scoured the Shakespeare country and other parts of England, and was now preparing to cross the Channel and occupy the north of France. We were instructed to get ourselves together and to move northward, join forces with him in Paris, after which we would proceed together to the conquest of Switzerland. Meanwhile, at St. Antoine, we had peaceful visitors, two gentle old ladies, friends of the family in New Zealand, and with them, we started out with no haste on our northward journey. We all wanted to see Rochamandur. Rochamandur is a shrine to the Mother of God, where an image of Our Lady is venerated in a cave chapel halfway off a cliff, against the side of which a monastery was built in the Middle Ages. The legend says that the place was first settled by the publican Zacchaeus, the man who climbed the sycamore tree to see Christ as he came by, and whom Christ told to climb down again and entertained him in his own house. At the moment when we were leaving Rochamondur, after a short visit that filled my mind with the memory of a long summer evening, with swallows flying around the wall of the old monastery up against the cliff, and around the tower of the new shrine on top of it, Pop was riding all around the Chateau of Lore in a bus full of Americans. And as they went whizzing through Chenisseau and Blue and Tours, Pop who had his pockets crammed full of two and five sous pieces, and even francs and two franc pieces, would dig in and scatter handfuls of coins into the streets whenever they passed a group of playing children. And the dusty wake of the bus would ring with his burst of laughter as all the kids plunged after the coins in a wild scramble. It was that way 
all the way through the Valley of Loire. When we got to Paris, having left the two old ladies from New Zealand in an obscure town called Sancerre, down in the south, we found Pop and Ponamaman entrenched in the most expensive hotel they could find. The Continental was far beyond their means, but it was 1926 and the franc was so low that Pop's head was completely turned by it and he had lost all sense of values. The first five minutes in that hotel room in Paris told us all we needed to know about the way it was going to be for the next two weeks in the whirlwind tour of Switzerland that was just about to begin. The room was crammed to the doors with so much useless luggage that you could hardly move around in it. And Bonamamon and John Paul let it be known that they had sunk into a state of more or less silent opposition and passive resistance to all of Pop's enthusiastic displays of optimism and pep. When Pop told us about the Loire campaign and the largesse with which he had showered every village from Orleans to Nantes, we realized from the mute pain in Bonamamon's expression as she turned an eloquent and pleading look to my father just how the rest of the family felt about all this. And seeing what we were in for, we more or less instinctively took sides with the oppressed. It was clear that every move from now on was going to be rich in public and private humiliation for the more or less delicate sensibilities of the rest of us. From Bonamamon, who was extremely touchy by nature, to John Paul and myself, who were quick to see or imagine that others were laughing at Pop and felt ourselves included in the derision by implication. And thus we started out for the Swiss frontier, traveling in easy stages, seven or eight hours a day in the train, and stopping overnight. There was the constant embarkation and debarkation from the trains and taxis and hotel buses, and each time every one of the 16 pieces of luggage had to be accounted for, and the voice of my grandfather would be heard echoing along the walls of the greatest railway stations in Europe. Martha, where the dickens did you leave the pigskin bag? On every piece of luggage, by way of identification, Pop had pasted a pink American two-cent stamp, a device which had aroused sharp and instantaneous criticism from myself and John Paul. What are you trying to do, Pop? We asked with sarcasm. Are you going to send that stuff through the mail? The first day was not so bad for me and father because we were still in France. We saw a little of Dijon, and the train passed through Bessacon on the way to Basel. But as soon as we got into Switzerland, things were different. For some reason, we found Switzerland extremely tedious. It was not my father's kind of landscape, and anyway, he had no time to sketch or paint anything, even if he wanted to. In every city, we hunted, first of all, for the museum. But the museums were never satisfactory. They were filled mostly with huge canvases by some modern Swiss national artist, paintings representing monstrous great executioners trying to chop the heads off Swiss patriots. Besides, it was always hard for us to find the museum in the first place, because we did not know German, and we couldn't make any sense out of the answers people gave us. Then, when we finally did get there, instead of the comfort of a few decent pictures, we would immediately be confronted by another immense red and yellow cartoon by the Swiss Jingo whose name I have forgotten. Finally, we took to making fun of everything in the museums and playing around and putting our hats on the statues, which was all right because the place was totally deserted anyway. But once or twice we nearly got into trouble with the stuffy Swiss custodians who came around the corner by surprise and found us mocking the hatted masterworks, kidding the busts of Beethoven and the rest. 
As a matter of fact, the only pleasure Father got out of the whole expedition was a jazz concert he heard in Paris given by a big American Negro orchestra. I cannot imagine who it was. I think it was too far back for Louis Armstrong, but Father was very happy with that. I did not go. Pop did not approve of jazz. But when we did go to Lucerne, there was an orchestra in the hotel, and our table in the dining room was so close to it, I think I could reach out and touch the drum. And the drummer was a Negro with whom I immediately made friends, although he was rather shy. Meals were very interesting with all this business-like drumming going on right in my ear, and I was more fascinated by the activities of the drummer than I was by the melons and meats that were set before us. This was the only pleasure I got out of Switzerland. And then, almost immediately, Pop got our table changed. The rest of the time was one long fight. We fought on pleasure steamers, we fought on funicular railways, we fought on the tops of mountains, and at the foot of mountains, and by the shores of lakes, and under the heavy branches of the evergreens. In the hotel at Lucerne, John Paul and I nearly came to blows, but a mammon being on John Paul's side, over the question as to whether the English had stolen the tune God Save the King from My Country Tisithy, or whether the Americans had cribbed My Country Tisithy from God Save the King. By this time, since I was on Father's British passport, I considered myself English. Perhaps the worst day of all was the day we climbed the Jungfrau in a train. All the way up I was arguing with Pop, who thought we were being cheated, for he contended that the Jungfrau was not nearly so high as all the other mountains around us, and he had embarked on this excursion on the more or less tacit assumption that the Jungfrau was the highest mountain around these parts. And now look, the Eiger and the Monk were much higher. I was vehement in explaining that the Jungfrau looked lower because it was further away, but Pop did not believe in my theory of perspective. By the time we got to the Jungfrau Jok, everyone was ready to fall down from nervous exhaustion, and the height made Bonamaman faint, and Pop began to feel sick. And I had a big crisis of tears in the dining room. And then when Father and I and John Paul walked out into the blinding white snow field without dark glasses, we all got headaches. And so the day as a whole was completely horrible. Then, in Interlachen, although Pop and Bonamaman had the intense consolation of being able to occupy the same rooms that had been used only a few months before by Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, John Paul humiliated the whole family by falling, fully dressed, into a pond full of goldfish and running through the hotel with water and green weeds dripping from him. Finally, we were all scared out of our wits when one of the maids, exhausted by the strain of waiting on so many hundreds of English and American tourists, fainted while carrying a loaded tray and crashed to the floor in a tornado of dishes right behind my chair. We were glad to get out of Switzerland and back into France, but by the time we reached Avignon, I had developed such a disgust for sightseeing that I would not leave the hotel to go and see the Palace of the Popes. I remained in the room and read Tarzan of the Apes, finishing the whole book before Father and John Paul returned from what was probably the only really interesting thing we had struck in the whole of that miserable journey. Part 5 Pop had come very unwillingly to St. Antoine, and as soon as he got there, he tried to leave again. The streets were too dirty. They disgusted him. But Bonamaman refused to move until the full month, 
or whatever time they had planned to stay had passed. However, one of the official family acts that took place during this time was an excursion to Motobon and the inspection of the Lycee to which I was to be sent in the fall. I suppose those brick cloisters looked innocent enough in the afternoon sun of late August when they were empty of the fiends and the black smocks who were to fill them in late September. I was to get my fill of bitterness in those buildings in due time. Pop and Bonamaman and John Paul and all the luggage left on the express for Paris as August came to an end. Then in the first week of September came the patronal feast of St. Antoine with torchlight processions and everybody dancing the polka and the chotiche under the Japanese lanterns on the esplanade. There were many other attractions and excitements, including a certain fanciful novelty in shooting galleries. At one end of town, there was a pigeon tied by the leg to the top of a tree, and everybody blasted at it with a shotgun until it was dead. At the other end of town, by the riverbank, men were shooting at a chicken which was tied to a floating box moored out in the center of the stream. For my own part, I entered a great competition with most of the boys and youths of the town in which we all jumped into the river and swam after a duck that was thrown off of the bridge. It was finally caught by a respectable fellow called Georges, who was studying to be a school teacher at the normal school in Montauban. At this time, being eleven and a half years old, I fell in love with a mousy little girl with blonde locks called Henriette. It was a rather desultory affair. She went home and told her parents that the son of the Englishman was in love with her, and her mother clapped her hands and their household rang with alleluias on that day. The next time I saw her, she was very friendly, and during one of the dances, with a kind of official artfulness, she followed me to chase her round and round a tree. Then the artificiality of the business dawned on me, and I went home, and Father said to me, What's this I hear about you chasing after girls of your age? After that, life became very serious, and a few weeks later, I put on my new blue uniform, and went off to the Lycee. Although by this time I knew French quite well, the first day in the big graveled yard, when I was surrounded by those fierce cat-like little faces, dark and morose, and looked into those score of pairs of glittering and hostile eyes, I forgot every word and could hardly answer the furious questions that were put to me. And my stupidity only irritated them all the more. They began to kick me and pull and twist my ears and push me around and shout various kinds of insults. I learned a great deal of obscenity and blasphemy in the first few days, simply by being the direct or indirect object of so much of it. After this, everybody accepted me and became quite friendly and pleasant, once they were used to my pale blue eyes and seemingly stupid English face. Nevertheless, when I lay awake at night in the huge, dark dormitory and listened to the snoring of the little animals all around me and heard through the darkness and the emptiness of the night the far screaming of the trains, or the mad iron cry of a bugle in a distant caserne of Senegalese troops, I knew for the first time in my life the pangs of desolation and emptiness and abandonment. At first I used to go home nearly every Sunday, taking the early train from Motoban at about 5.30 in the morning, and I would plead with Father to let me out of that miserable school, but it was in vain. After about two months I got used to it, and ceased to be so unhappy. The wound was no longer so raw, but I was never happy or at peace in the violent and unpleasant atmosphere of those brick cloisters. The children I had associated with at St. Antoine had not by any means been angels, 
but there had been at least a certain simplicity and affability about them. Of course, the boys who went to the Lycee were of the same breed and the same stamp. There was no specific difference, except that they came from families that were better off. All of my friends at St. Antoine had been children of workmen and peasants with whom I sat in the elementary school. But when a couple of hundred of these southern French boys were thrown together in the prison of the Lycee, a subtle change operated in their spirit and mentality. In fact, I noticed that when you were with them separately outside the school, they were mild and peaceable and humane enough. But when they were all together, there seemed to be some diabolical spirit of cruelty and viciousness and obscenity and blasphemy and envy and hatred that banded them all together against all goodness and against one another in mockery and fierce cruelty and in vociferous, uninhibited filthiness. Contact with that wolf pack felt very patently like contact with the mystical body of the devil. And especially in the first few days, the members of that body did not spare themselves in kicking me around without mercy. The students were divided into two strictly segregated groups. I was among les petites, those in quatrième, the fourth class, and below it. The oldest among us were 15 and 16, and among these were five or six big morose bullies with thick black hair growing out of their foreheads, almost down to their eyebrows. They were physically stronger than anybody else, and though less intelligent, they were craftier in the works of evil, louder in obscenity, and completely unrestrained in their brutality when the mood was on them. Of course, they were not always unpleasant and hostile, but in a sense, their friendship was more dangerous than their enmity, and in fact, it was this that did the most harm, because good children who had come to the school quickly got into the habit of tolerating all the unpleasantness of these individuals, in order not to get their heads knocked off for failing to applaud. And so the whole school, or at least part of it, was dominated by their influence. When I think of the Catholic parents who sent their children to a school like that, I begin to wonder what was wrong with their heads. Down by the river, in a big clean white building, was a college run by the Marist Fathers. I had never been inside it. Indeed, it was so clean that it frightened me. But I knew a couple of boys who went to it. They were the sons of the little lady who ran the pastry shop opposite the church at St. Antoine, and I remember them as exceptionally nice fellows, very pleasant and good. It never occurred to anyone to despise them for being pious, and how unlike the products of the Lycee they were. When I reflect on all this, I am overwhelmed at the thought of the tremendous weight of moral responsibility that Catholic parents accumulate upon their shoulders by not sending their children to Catholic schools. Those who are not of the church have no understanding of this. They cannot be expected to. As far as they see, all this insistence on Catholic schools is only a money-making device by which the church is trying to increase its domination over the minds of men and its temporal prosperity. And of course, most non-Catholics imagine that the church is immensely rich, and that all Catholic institutions make money hand over fist, and that all the money is stored away somewhere to buy gold and silver dishes for the Pope and cigars for the College of Cardinals. Is it any wonder that there can be no peace in a world where everything possible is done to guarantee that the youth of every nation will grow up absolutely without moral and religious discipline and without the shadow of an interior life of spirituality or of that spirituality and charity and faith which alone can safeguard the treaties and agreements made by governments? And Catholics, thousands of Catholics everywhere 
have the consummate audacity to weep and complain because God does not hear their prayers for peace when they have neglected not only his will, but the ordinary dictates of natural reason and prudence, and let their children grow up according to the standards of a civilization of hyenas. The experience of living with the kind of people I found in the Lycee was something new to me, but in degree rather than in kind. There was the same animality and toughness and insensitivity and lack of conscience that existed to some extent in my own character, and which I found more or less everywhere. But these French children seemed to be so much tougher and more cynical and more precocious than anyone else I had ever seen. How then could I fit them in with the ideal of France which my father had and which even I had then in an obscure and inchoate form? I suppose the only answer is corruptio optimi pessima, since evil is the defect of good, the lack of good that ought to be there, and nothing positive in itself. It follows that the greatest evil is found where the highest good has been corrupted. And I suppose the most shocking thing about France is the corruption of French spirituality into flippancy and cynicism, of French intelligence into sophistry, of French dignity and refinement into petty vanity and theatrical self-display, of French charity into a disgusting fleshly concupiscence, and of French faith into sentimentality or puerile atheism. There was all of this in the Lycée Ingres at Matabon. However, as I say, I adjusted myself to the situation and got into a group of more or less peaceful friends who had more wit than obscenity about them and were, in fact, the more intelligent children in the three lower classes. I say intelligent. I mean also precocious. But they had ideals and ambitions, and as a matter of fact, by the middle of my first year, I remember we were all furiously writing novels. On the days when we went out for walks, two by two into the country, in a long line which broke up into groups at the edge of town, my friends and I would get together, walking in a superior way, with our caps on the back of our heads, our hands in our pockets, like the great intellectuals that we were, discussing our novels. The discussion was not merely confined to telling the plot of what we were writing. A certain amount of criticism was passed back and forth. For instance, I was engaged in a great adventure story, the scene of which was laid in India, and the style of which was somewhat influenced by Pierre Loti. It was written in French. At one point in the story, I had the hero, who was in financial difficulties except a loan of some money from the heroine. This concept evoked loud cries of protest from my confrères, who found that it offended all the most delicate standards required in a romantic hero. What do you mean except money from the heroine? C'est impossible! I had not thought of that at all, but I made the change. That particular novel was never finished, as I remember, but I know I finished at least one other, and probably two, besides one which I wrote at Saint Antoine before coming to the Lycée. They were all scribbled in exercise books, profusely illustrated in pen and ink, and the ink was generally bright blue. One of the chief of these works, I remember, was inspired by Kingsley's Westward Ho and by Lorna Doone and it was about a man living in Devonshire in the 16th century. The villains were all Catholics, in league with Spain, and the book ended in a tremendous naval battle off the coast of Wales, which I illustrated with great care. At one point in the book, a priest, one of the villains, set fire to the house of the heroine. I did not tell my friends this. I think they would have been offended. They were at least nominal Catholics, and were among the students who 
who lined up two by two to go to Mass at the cathedral on Sunday mornings. On the other hand, I do not think they can have been very well instructed Catholics, for one day as we were emerging from the Lycée on the way out to one of those walks, we passed two religious in black soutans with black bushy beards standing in the square before the school, and one of my friends hissed in my ear, Jesuits! For some reason or other, he was scared of Jesuits. And as a matter of fact, now that I know more about religious orders, I realized that they were not Jesuits, but Passionist missionaries, with the white insignia of the Passionists on their breasts. At first, on Sundays, when I remained at the Lycée, I stayed in permanence with the others who did not go out to Mass at the cathedral. That is, I sat in the study hall, reading the novels of Jules Verne or Rudyard Kipling. I was very much affected by the French translation of The Light That Failed. But later on, Father arranged for me to receive instructions with a handful of others from a little fat Protestant minister who came to the Lycée to evangelize us. On Sunday mornings, we gathered around the stove in the bleak octagonal edifice which had been erected in one of the courts as a Protestant temple for the students. The minister was a serious little man. He explained the parables of the Good Samaritan and the Pharisee and the publican and so on. I don't remember that there was any particularly deep spirituality about it, but there was nothing to prevent him from showing us the obvious moral lessons. I am grateful that I got at least that much of religion at an age when I badly needed it. It was years since I had even been inside a church for any other purpose than to look at the stained glass windows or the Gothic vaulting. However, it was practically useless. What is the good of religion without personal spiritual direction, without sacraments, without any means of grace, except a desultory prayer now and then, at intervals, and an occasional vague sermon? There was also a Catholic chapel in the Lycée, but it was falling into ruins and the glass was out of most of the windows. Nobody ever saw the inside of it because it was locked up tight. I suppose back in the days when the Lycée was built, the Catholics had managed, at the cost of several years of patient effort, to get this occasion out of the government people who were wrecking the school. But in the long run, it did not do them much good. The only real valuable religious and moral training I ever got as a child came to me from my father, not systematically, but here and there and more or less spontaneously in the course of ordinary conversations. Father never applied himself of set purpose to teach me religion. But if something spiritual was on his mind, it came out more or less naturally. And this is the kind of religious teaching, or any other kind of teaching, that has the most effect. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good fruit. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And as precisely as this speech, out of the abundance of the heart, that makes an impression, and produces an effect in other people. We give ear and pay at least a partially respectful attention to anyone who is really sincerely convinced of what he is saying, no matter what it is, even if it is opposed to our own ideas. I have not the slightest idea what the little pastor told us about the Pharisee and the publican, but I shall never forget a casual remark Father happened to make in which he told me of St. Peter's betrayal of Christ and how, hearing the cock crow, Peter went out and wept bitterly. I forget how it came up and what the context was that suggested it. We were just talking casually, standing in the hall of the flat we had taken on the Place de la Condamine. 
I have never lost the vivid picture I got at the moment of Peter going out and weeping bitterly. I wonder how I ever managed to forget for so many years the understanding I acquired at that moment of how St. Peter felt and of what his betrayal meant to him. Father was not afraid to express his ideas about truth and morality to anybody that seemed to need them, that is, if a real occasion arose. He did not, of course, go around interfering with everybody else's business, but once his indignation got the better of him and he gave a piece of his mind to a shrew of a Frenchwoman, one of those spiteful, sharp-tongued bourgeois who was giving free expression to her hatred of one of her neighbors who very much resembled herself. He asked her why she thought Christ had told people to love their enemies. Did she suppose God commanded this for his benefit? Did he get anything out of it that he really needed from us? Or was it not rather for her own good that he had given us this commandment? He told her that if she had any sense, she would love other people, if only for the sake of the good and health and peace of her own soul, instead of tearing herself to pieces with her own envy and spitefulness. It was St. Augustine's argument that envy and hatred try to pierce our neighbor with a sword, where the blade cannot reach him unless it first passes through her own body. I suppose my father had never read any of St. Augustine, but he would have liked him. This incident with the shrew reminds one a little of Léon Blois. Father had not read him either, but he would have liked him too. They had much in common. But Father shared none of Blois' fury. If he had been a Catholic, his vocation as a lay contemplative would have certainly developed along the same lines, for I'm sure he had that kind of vocation. But unfortunately, it never really developed, because he never got to the sacraments. However, there were in him the latent germs of the same spiritual poverty and all of Blois' hatred of materialism and of false spiritualities and of worldly values in people who call themselves Christians. In the winter of 1926, Father went to Marat. Marat is in the Cantal, the old province of Orvergne, a Catholic province. It's in the mountains of central France, green mountains, old volcanoes. The valleys are full of rich pastures and the mountains are heavy with fir trees that raise their green domes to the sky. The people of this land are the Celts, mostly. The Auvergnats have been more or less laughed at in French tradition for their simplicity and rusticity. They are very stolid people, not very good people. At Marat, father boarded with a family who had a little house, a sort of small farm, on the slope of one of the steep hills outside of town, and I went up there to spend the Christmas holidays that year. Marat was a wonderful place. It was deep in snow, and the houses with their snow-covered roofs relieved the gray and blue and slate-dark patterns of the buildings crowded together on the sides of three hills. The town huddled at the foot of a rock crowned by a colossal statue of the Immaculate Conception, which seemed to me at the time to be too big and to bespeak too much religious enthusiasm. By now I realized that it did not indicate any religious excess at all. These people wanted to say, in a very obvious way, that they loved Our Lady, who should indeed be loved and revered, as a queen of great power and a lady of immense goodness and mercy, mighty in her intercession for us before the throne of God, tremendous in the glory of her sanctity and her fullness of grace as the mother of God. For she loves the children of God, who are born into the world with the image of God in their souls, and her powerful love is forgotten, and it is not understood in the blindness and foolishness of the world. However, I did not bring up the subject of Marat in order to talk about the statue, 
but about Monsieur and Madame Privat, who were the people with whom we boarded, and long before we got to Marat, where the trains were climbing up the snowy valley from Orelac on the other side of the Pou de Cantal, father was telling me, wait until you see the Privats. In a way, they were among the most remarkable people I've ever known. The Auvergnats are, as a rule, not tall. The Privats were both of them not much taller than I was, being then about twelve, but tall for my age. I suppose Monsieur Privat was about five foot three or four, but not much more. But he was tremendously broad, a man of great strength. He seemed to have no neck, but his head rose from his shoulders in a solid column of muscle and bone, and for the rest, his shadow was almost completely square. He wore a black, broad-rimmed hat, like most of the peasants of the region, and it gave his face an added solemnity when his sober and judicious eyes looked out at you peacefully from under the regular brows and that regular brim above them. These two decks, two levels of regularity, added much to the impression of solidity and immobility and impassiveness which he carried with him everywhere, whether at work or at rest. His wife was little more than a bird, thin, serious, earnest, quick, but also full of that peacefulness and impassiveness which, as I now know, came from living close to God. She wore a funny little headdress, which I find it almost impossible to describe, except to say that it looked a little like a sugar loaf perched on the top of her head and garnished with a bit of black lace. The women of Auvergne still wear that headdress. It's a great pleasure for me to remember such good and kind people and to talk about them, although I no longer possess any details about them. I just remember their kindness and goodness to me, and their peacefulness and their utter simplicity. They inspired real reverence, and I think in a way they were certainly saints. And they were saints in that most effective and telling way, sanctified by leading ordinary lives in a completely supernatural manner, sanctified by obscurity, by usual skills, by common tasks, by routine. But skills, tasks, routine, which received a supernatural form from grace within, and from the habitual union of their souls with God in deep faith and charity. Their farm, their family, and their church were all that occupied these good souls, and their lives were full. Father, who thought more and more of my physical and moral health, realized what a treasure he had found in these two, and consequently, Marat was more and more in his mind as a place where I should go and get healthy. That winter, at the Lycée, I spent several weeks in the infirmary with various fevers, and the following summer, when Father had to go to Paris, he took the opportunity to send me once again to Marat to spend a few weeks living with the Privats, who would feed me plenty of butter and milk and would take care of me in every possible way. Those were weeks I shall never forget, and the more I think of them, the more I realize I must certainly owe the Privats for more than butter and milk and good nourishing food for my body. I'm indebted to them for much more than the kindness and care they showed me, the goodness and the delicate solicitude with which they treated me as their own child, yet without any assertive or natural familiarity. As a child, and since then too, I have always tended to resist any kind of possessive affection on the part of any other human being. There has always been this profound instinct to keep clear, to keep free, and only with truly supernatural people have I ever felt really at my ease, really at peace. That was why I was glad of the love the Provost showed me and was ready to love them in return. It did not burn you. It did not hold you. It did not try to imprison you in demonstrations or trap your feet in the snares of its interest. I used to run in the woods and climb mountains. I went up the Plomb du Cantal, which is nothing more than a huge hill, with a boy who was, I think, the Provat's nephew. 
He went to a Catholic school taught, I suppose, by priests. It had not occurred to me that every boy did not talk like the brats I knew at the lycée. Without thinking, I let out some sort of remark of the kind you heard all day long at Montauban, and he was offended and asked where I had picked up that kind of talk. And yet, while being ashamed of myself, I was impressed by the charitableness of his reaction. He dismissed it at once, and seemed to have forgotten all about it, and left me with the impression that he excused me on the grounds that I was English and had to use the expression without quite knowing what it meant. After all, this going to Marat was a great grace. Did I realize it? I did not know what a grace was, and though I was impressed with the goodness of the Provence, I could not fail to realize what was in its roots and its foundations, and yet it never occurred to me at the time to think of being like them, of profiting in any way by their example. I think I only talked to them once about religion. We were all sitting on the narrow balcony, looking out over the valley, at the hills turning dark blue and purple in the September dusk. Somehow, something came up about Catholics and Protestants, and immediately I had the sense of all the solidity and rectitude of the Provats turned against me, accusing me like the face of an impregnable fortification. So I began to justify Protestantism as best I could. I think they had probably said they could not see how I managed to go on living without the faith, for there was only one faith, one church. So I gave them the argument that every religion was good. They all led to God, only in different ways, and every man should go according to his own conscience and settle things according to his own private way of looking at things. They did not answer me in any argument. They simply looked at one another and shrugged, and Monsieur Privat said, quietly and sadly, Mais c'est impossible. It was a terrible, a frightening, a very humiliating thing to feel all their silence and peacefulness and strength turned against me, accusing me of being estranged from them, isolated from their security, cut off from their protection and from the strength of their inner life by my own fault, by my own willfulness, by my own ignorance, and by my uninstructed Protestant pride. One of the humiliating things about it was that I wanted them to argue, and they despised argument. It was as if they realized, as I did not, that my attitude and my desire of argument and religious discussion implied a fundamental and utter lack of faith, and a dependence on my own lights, and attachment to my own opinion. What is more, they seemed to realize I did not believe in anything, and that anything I might say I believed would be only empty talk. Yet they did not give me the feeling that this was some slight matter, something to be indulged in a child, something that could be left to work itself out in time of its own accord. I had never met people to whom belief was a matter of such moment, and yet there was nothing they could do for me directly. But what they could do, I am sure they did, and I am glad they did it. And thank God from the bottom of my heart that they were concerned, and so deeply and vitally concerned, at my lack of faith. Who knows how much I owe to these two wonderful people. Anything I say about it is only a matter of guessing, but knowing their charity, it is to me a matter of moral certitude that I owe many graces to their prayers, and perhaps ultimately the grace of my conversion, and even of my religious vocation. Who shall say? But one day I shall know, and it is good to be able to be confident that I will see them again, and be able to thank them.